Are some of your Canadian investments still locked in the slow lane with GICs and bonds? And on the way out, you're getting hit with high income tax bills? Ever wonder if there's a way to navigate some of these challenges while still keeping your assets safe and secure? Stay tuned for an episode that sheds light on innovative Canadian investment strategies reshaping the traditional approach to income tax and wealth growth. Stick with us and you'll learn how to navigate the ups and downs of the GIC and bond market and avoid those common pitfalls of fluctuating rates and all while optimizing for income tax efficiency. We'll also uncover the secret to Canadian tax efficiency investing, ensure your returns aren't eroded by those pesky income tax implications specific to Canada. And finally, you're going to imagine a Canadian world where your safer investments enjoy tax sheltering without compromising valuable RRSP and TFSA room, allowing you to supercharge your portfolio. All right, my friends, let's get ready to rock and roll. Here we go. Welcome to the Canadian Wealth Secrets Podcast with Kyle Pierce and John Orr, where we help high net income individuals grow their wealth into a legacy that lasts generations through hidden investment and tax secrets your financial advisors won't believe are true. Welcome in, folks, to another episode of the Canadian Wealth Secrets Podcast. We're formerly the Invested Teacher Podcast, so if you were just listening to that and you're like, wait a minute, am I in the right spot? You are in the right spot. We've changed the title just recently, and I think it's a little bit more appropriate to what we've been discussing the whole time anyway. Specifically, we are based out of Canada, so we are talking all about building our wealth through various means. We first started talking about real estate investment, but we talk about so many different ways to build our wealth. We thought it was best to change the name to the Canadian Wealth Secrets Podcast. So here we are, Kyle. Let's get into it because we're going to talk about all about GICs and bonds and whether we should be investing or safeguarding our money by putting them into these vehicles, or are there other better alternatives, especially for us high-income net worth people? Yes, absolutely. And when we dig into this one, this actually was based on a conversation we were having recently. A lot of people, as you can imagine, as we record this, it's the beginning of 2024. The Fed in the U.S. and the Bank of Canada here have decided to hold rates a little bit longer, which means we're dealing with what many would call very high interest rates comparatively to what they've experienced over these last five to 10 years. But historically, they're not that high, but they are higher than typical. And what that's done is that's actually elevated the bond markets and in turn, some of the GICs that are available. For those who are unaware, if you're a U.S. listener and you're now listening to this new Canadian Wealth Secrets podcast, GICs are like our investment certificates that they're like CDs in the U.S., but here they're guaranteed investment certificates and they're going to give you a specific specified fixed income over a period of time. It could be six months. It could be 12 months. It could be five years. They really do vary. And obviously, when interest rates are higher like they are now, people start to look at these 
fixed assets as a great safe place to store their wealth. And let's be honest, when you look at any sort of investing book, when it comes to the fundamentals, you're going to hear people talking about like a split between stocks and bonds, right? Bonds being those more fixed income, those more secured assets, or at least they're supposed to act that way. If you actually buy bonds, we can go into a completely different rabbit hole around how bonds aren't always safe. However, what we're really digging into here is the actual interest that's being generated from these secured assets. So when we look here as Canadians into GICs, they're definitely attractive because they're pretty basic. They're pretty easy, right? I'm going to hand over a specific amount of money, right? So John, you're the bank. I'm going to hand over a hundred dollars and you're going to give me, and right now, as of this recording, we, for example, here at Windsor Family Credit Union, we'll put the link to these rates in our show notes. Windsor Family Credit Union, I found was offering some of the highest GIC rates but noting that they were like specials, almost like get in the door specials. The highest I see here for a one year is 5.9%. So you're looking at that going like, wow, that's amazing. Five year is 4.5%. Now, some people would be like, but wait a second, I thought rates are high. Mortgage rates are around 6%. Why can't I get my five year GIC rate to be at 6%? Well, what this actually means as we look further into the future, what it's suggesting is that the bond market is telling us that they're anticipating that rates will actually start to decrease over the next five years. So that's what that's saying. Does it mean it's going to happen? No. But as investors, banks are investors. They're looking at this and going, okay, how can we bring as much money in the door? And then how can we then take that money and lend it back out to other people at a higher rate? So what they're saying right now is they're like, listen, if you give me $100 for one year, in one year's time, I'm going to return your $100, but I'm also going to give you this additional interest, which they have posted here as 5.9%. So you're going to get $5.90, right? You could scale this up if it's $100,000. Now you're getting $5,900 back. Now that seems pretty awesome because it feels pretty secure, right? You're like handing over your money to the bank, just like everybody's doing each and every week, right? If you're getting a paycheck, it's going into the bank, right? Everyone's putting them into the bank. So everyone's trusting that the bank is going to be there at the end of the year or the end of the five years to get their GIC money back. However, we're going to discuss here and unpack a little bit around how maybe GICs aren't necessarily the best fit for that chunk of your investment nest egg that you're hoping to keep in a secured sort of income generating asset like a GIC. All right, Kyle. So let's dive in here a little bit because I think before we get into the nuts and bolts of deciding whether a GIC is the best option for this chunk of money and, and whether there are other options, let's first kind of talk about comparing GICs to stocks, to thinking about our portfolios, to other vehicles as well. Because I think what we're saying here is that if we're going GIC, I'm thinking I want this to be secured. It's guaranteed. This is not money that I'm playing with. This is money that I want to secure for the future. So maybe it's money that I want to put away for a long time. It's part of my retirement, or maybe it's this money that I don't need to touch for a while. It's not money that I'm willing to put in the stock market. Let's say that. Like you think about, there's an article that we pulled from MSNBC. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. Talking about what's the amount of money we should be investing anyway. 
how much should we be putting over in GICs or how much should we be putting in the stock market? There's this 50, 15, 5 rule, which helps you think about how much you should be putting away. 50% of your income is covering your expenses. Like, hey, I'm not going to touch any of that. I got to pay all my bills. I've got this 15 part of the rule, which is like 15% of my money should be going towards investing. And that can be your pension, but that could also be your stock portfolio, it could be your GICs, and it could be other forms of, of investing in your RSPs, your tax-free savings accounts here in Canada. The five part, you got your 5% savings. You've got some money sitting over here. We talked about an emergency fund a while ago, different ways, ideas about that emergency fund. That could be part of that, that emergency fund as well, even though we did talk about alternate, smarter ways to use that money for your emergency fund. And then we got this 30% as discretionary spending in there as well. So when you think about that 15% of your investing and you're thinking about how much that we should be putting in, should we be putting all of that in the stocks? What's the balance between stocks and bonds? Kyle, what's the going kind of consensus here? Because I know a lot of people, I've looked at target date funds for this because they help you figure this problem out, right? It's like, if I want to retire in this year, a target date fund can help you rebalance that split between stocks, equities, and bonds so that by the time, if you're early, if you're far away from your target, you're more heavily into the stocks, the high returns. But then as you get closer, it's rebalancing towards this safer part of the GICs and the bonds in that, in that area. So it automatically does a little rebalance for you if you go with a target date fund. But if you're not, if you're managing your own, you've got to figure this out. Yeah, absolutely. And even just to push on this 50-15-5 rule, it's a really helpful rule, I think, for those who are earning enough income. So a lot of people listening to this podcast are likely earning enough where 15% is a significant amount. However, for those who are in lower income brackets, 15% in investing, unfortunately, just isn't enough for them to actually create sort of that nest egg that they're going to require for retirement. For those people, though, that are earning 100000 200000 and beyond a year, 15% is probably more than enough. But I would also argue that I would encourage that that 15% actually grows with your income, meaning, hey, if I'm earning 200000 a year, 250, 300 and more a year, that actually you don't want to just commit to 15%. You actually want to be committing to much, much more because otherwise we're going to let that lifestyle creep kind of take over, right? That inflation. And the problem is if you're only doing 15%, even if you're a high net worth individual or high income individual. The problem is, is that you're getting used to spending a significant amount and then you've got this little nest egg that's supposed to take you through retirement. You're going to actually get smacked across the face with having to actually reduce your spending significantly. So with the more money you earn, I would argue the the bigger that amount to be invested, we should be focusing on. So just food for thought for those who are listening and are going, holy smokes, I was doing 15%, but maybe that's not enough given my high salary or my high income across the household. When it comes to the actual ratio or the split, there are a couple, we'll call them like rules of thumb, 
But mostly what people tend to do is they tend to say, like, listen, when you're younger, you could be more risk tolerant and therefore you have more time in the market and you could have a higher weighted stock portfolio. And some have even thrown out this idea of like, hey, take 100. Let's pretend that we're all going to live to 100. Let's subtract our age from that. So if you're 40 years old, what they're suggesting is you're going to have a 60-40 split of stocks is 60 and then bonds and other sort of fixed income. I say fixed bonds aren't necessarily, I mean, it's a fixed income, but the values go up and down depending on how long you hold them for. That would be 40%. If you're 20 years old, you could be a hundred percent invested in stock or sorry, 80% invested in stocks and 20% invested in more secured fixed types of assets. Now, Warren Buffett, who tends to know a thing or two, he is sort of an advocate of a 90-10 split regardless of your age, simply based on the math. So we're going to put a bunch of links in the show notes for you to go down that rabbit hole. But ultimately, he's like, listen, throw 90% of your money into low-fee stock index funds. And it can be S&P. It can be different parts of the world. He's a big advocate for U.S. markets. And then 10% into short-term government bonds. So regardless of how you go, you're kind of looking at, if we use the 100 minus your age, or whether you have Buffett's strategy, basically you're looking at between 10% and maybe even upwards of 40 or 50% of your investments are quote unquote suggested to be in non-stock or non-growth type assets and should be into things that are more producing some sort of fixed income yield like short-term government bonds, GICs would be bank CDs, right? And really what we want to talk to you about today is not about the stock part of your portfolio. We want to talk to you about that 10 to 40 or 50%, depending on your age and what you think is best for you, where you might consider putting some of those funds in order to get a more predictable outcome. And ultimately, really just almost a set and forget sort of strategy where you can still feel good that you have a ratio that makes sense based on either what Warren's saying or what this hundred minus the age rule is saying and what many other investment advisors are saying from across the board. Yeah. So we think about going down that route and going, let's focus on those GICs. And if we start with is that the best place for our money? So we often want to take, and the purpose of our podcast is to think about how do we can we save tax? I think, Kyle, you did some number crunching. It's like, if you literally have a two-teacher income household, you're like in the top 2% of families across Canada. You're considered a high-income family. So it's like, if you're making more than that, then you're also a high-income earner in a higher-income family and in net worth. So it's like, when we think about that, when we think of our high net worth families or individuals, we want to go, well, it's actually easy. Instead of making more money, if I want to make more money, it's actually easier, right, Kyle, to save on tax, right? So it's like, that's the purpose of what we want to talk about as much as we can. It's like, how can we save tax? So that's always a lens we put on any sort of investment or any sort of discussion about money, where we can put it. So think about this. If I've got GIC, then I want to put my money into a GIC first. If I go unregistered account, so I'm not talking about tax-free savings account or RSP, you're putting after-tax dollars 
into those and then that's going to grow in those GICs, but then you're going to pay tax on the interest in the amount that you make at the end of that, right? So you're putting pre or after tax dollars. You're at your probably your highest income tax bracket right now. It's going to go in there. You're growing. Let's say it's at that 5.9%. That money's going to come out. That $5.90 that's coming out, like you said before, Kyle, you're going to pay tax on that capital gain. The other way is like if you put it in registered funds, right? So if I go with RRSPs or tax-free savings account, then depending on which where I put the tax in. So I put the tax, do I pay the tax because I'm putting in after-tax dollars in an RRSP? I get that save on that tax. I get that tax rebate right there. Now there's a cap there, right? I can't just put all my money in there. I can't just put a, I have to maintain the caps. Same with the tax-free savings account. I get to put it inside that container over there. It'll grow and I don't pay tax on that gain instead, but I used after-tax dollars. So I did pay tax somewhere. Most people think, I think Kyle is like, you can't get away from it, right? It's going in there and you're paying tax either at the front or at the end, but that's where we want to talk to you about like maybe a better alternative. Hey there, Canadian Wealth Secret Seekers. If you are an incorporated business owner who wants some clarity around how your corporation can provide you a better option for tax sheltering than the RRSPs that you've been socking away, we should chat. For those whose annual retained earnings are significant, we have some even more beneficial, unique, and compliant strategies to supercharge your personal income while growing your net worth at the very same time. Learn more on a quick discovery call by visiting CanadianWealthSecrets.com forward slash discovery. That's CanadianWealthSecrets.com forward slash discovery to book a short call to speak with us today. Absolutely. And I think it's really important. I want to really, really rubber stamp this idea of paying more attention to how we are being taxed is really important. And that is like you said, John, it's like a lot of people have sort of written off this idea that they're just like, well, it is what it is. And I'm just going to let it happen. And the reality is, is that that is, it's a poor approach because ultimately your decisions that you make on where you make investments, what investments you make and the implication it's going to have on you is it really does matter. So for example, one of the challenges, some people might be like, well, listen, I'm going to put my 10 to 40% of my portfolio in these safe income producing bond like assets, and I'm going to put them in my RSP or in my tax-free savings account so that the interest earned off of them is tax-free. Amazing. Like that's awesome. But it's such a low amount that you're not saving that much money. What I'm looking at is I'm going, I want those registered accounts to be where I see the most growth, especially my tax-free savings account, right? Because the money's already been taxed that I'm putting into it. It's going to grow tax-free and it comes out tax-free. So I want to make sure that I save my tax-free savings account for my more aggressive investments, whatever that looks like for you. Maybe more aggressive means index funds in the S&P 500, or maybe it's like Bitcoin ETFs. I don't know. That's totally up to you. But what I think we have to be really cautious about is imagine a world where I didn't have to even commit 
any of my RSP room or my tax-free savings account room to accomplishing the task of filling that 10 to 40 or 50% bucket of those secured or fixed income type assets that are supposed to be safer and just spit off a dividend or interest, but are in turn going to be taxed if they are outside of those vehicles. Like imagine I can accomplish the same result somewhere else and have additional safety. And I think if we just reflect on this and say, well, if I am, let's say, getting a 5% interest rate and I'm being taxed at 30%, then my 5% interest rate is only going to be after tax 3.5%. That's not very good at all. And I would argue that GIC rates go up and down so much that it's like, well, what's your plan after rates start coming down again, right? So, I mean, we look at the the five-year pricing and it's suggesting that over the longer term, we're going to start to see rates coming down. And a lot of economists would agree with that, that end of 2024, we'll probably see some rates coming down. If we look historically, rates usually spike down as well. So they don't just slowly come down. They usually come down aggressively because what happens is, is that we're looking at trailing data. I say we, the Bank of Canada is looking at trailing data and they're like, oh, there's still inflation. There's still inflation. There's still inflation. Then they reach the goal. They hold for a bit, which we have been holding. And then what they find out is they've actually gone too far. Right. So the economy starts to break. And then what do they do? They pull the rug on interest rates and interest rates start to flop down. So you might have got lucky and put some money into GICs now to get some of those returns. But when that five year GIC comes due, where are rates going to be then? Are we going to be looking at a 3% GIC rate? Are we going to be looking at a 2.5% GIC rate? And is that what you were really after? And I would argue that that just feels like a lot of work despite the fact that it is going to safely hold your cash and allow it to grow a little bit to try to keep up with inflation. Let's be honest, a 5% interest rate, especially after tax when it's coming out at 3.5%, that is below the historical average over the past, I think it's 40 to 50 years, the historical average inflation rates around 4% in Canada. That's typically where it's at. We want to be at two, but typically we're kind of like hanging out around there. You're not even keeping up with inflation here. So sure, your money's safe, but it's still eroding. It's just eroding at a smaller amount. Imagine if we could take some of these funds that you were going to put into something super safe, if we could do that as well, save the room in our RSPs and our tax-free savings account and accomplish that task through another means that also produces not only a tax benefit, but also some other, we'll call them goodies, the cherries on top in order to ensure that we're able to maximize what happens to this particular chunk of our investment portfolio. Yeah. So Kyle, what would you say is that solution? Like, I think we can go down that path right now and go, hey, let's look at that scenario. Let's talk about what we should be doing instead. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to clarify before we get in, I'm going to essentially just say the conversation I had recently with someone, someone that's actually close to me and my family. We were having the discussion that said, we're thinking about putting some money in GICs. The one thing I want to really be clear on here is that if 
your goal for buying a GIC is so that your money can sit until you need to use all of it in a year, a two, three, whatever it is. Maybe it's a car purchase or maybe it's something else. And you don't anticipate to have that money afterwards. Like you're going to take it back, take the interest, and then you're going to be putting it out there. You're going to deploy it into something. Then this might not make sense for you. But I would argue this particular individual was like, I have this big chunk of cash that I want to know is not going to go down in value. I also don't want it to just sit in a bank account doing nothing. So for some of you who are listening and have listened to multiple episodes, you might know where I'm going with this and you might start thinking, wait a second, what did Kyle and John say we might do with that money that sits in a checking account as our emergency fund, for example? And if that is you, if you're thinking that, you're absolutely right. For that type of person who's like, I just want to get this consistent return in a safe manner, I might consider taking a portion of that chunk from my investment portfolio that I want to just get consistent returns, that income-like returns, I might consider putting that into a participating whole life policy. So for me... I don't own any low interest generating assets like GICs or anything like that. Instead, what I do is I actually put that same amount of money into a participating whole life policy to do the same job. And the reason I do that is because over the long term, I know a few things. One thing I know for sure is that the companies that we're using are insurance companies that have been around for 50, some 100 years here in Canada and have never, ever gone out of business, right? So there's that one thing. That's the same sort of thing we have with our banks. We know that our banks are strong here in Canada, so it's not really a concern of mine. I know some people are fear mongers. I'm not, but I've got this insurance company that's going to take this money and they're going to contractually guarantee that my money will not go down in value over time. Now, some people are like, wait a second, what if I cancel my policy in the first year? It would go down in value. And the answer is yes. Just like if you wanted to go to the bank and you wanted to get your GIC money back in year one when it's a five-year GIC, you've got yourself in a pickle. They're going to say, well, some of them are going to say, sorry. We don't have it. It's invested. You're not getting it back yet. Other people, uh, you know, other scenarios, they might say, okay, here's your money back. You're not getting any interest. Maybe there's a penalty, whatever it is. To be honest, I don't, I've never bought a GIC, so I don't even know what that's going to look like or sound like because I do this strategy instead. And when I put it over here into this policy, this policy, I know that if I stick with this policy and I let this thing go, as we enter the year six, year seven and beyond, the average growth of the value of cash that's building up in this policy is going to be in the four to 5% ish range. And the beauty is, is that it's all happening completely tax sheltered. So it's like I've created my own little tax sheltered little place to put this money instead of me taking that same money, putting it into my RSP or putting it into my tax-free savings account, allowing that to take up room in there just so that I can protect myself from the tax on 5% interest on the GICs right now. The other thing that I think is really important for us to think about is, again, we don't know where GIC rates are going to be in five years from now, right? The beauty of 
this whole life policy as a strategy for those fixed secured assets that you're looking to grow at a low rate of return, but make sure that that never goes backwards. If I do that with GICs, I don't know what those rates are going to be over time. Whereas over here, I can't guarantee what the rates are going to be over time, but I can look back to the history and I can see that consistently you're getting pretty significant returns and all tax-free. Yeah, totally. And then not to mention some of the other benefits we've talked about in past episodes that as that cash value grows year to year to year, you have access to that, right? You can say, you know what, I need to go use that money or go make this purchase, or I can invest in this real estate investment, or I could put it in the stock market over here if I choose to. You can supercharge some of these things like in our past episodes we've talked about. Now you're not going and taking the money physically back. You are borrowing against that collateral and you're getting a policy loan and you can go off and do that. So we've talked about that many times. It's almost like you have access to it, but you do get to utilize the cash value that's been building up in there. Whereas in a GIC, you can't borrow against that. You can't go to the bank and say, hey, I want to borrow against my GIC. They're not going to allow you to do that. The other thing, it, depending on how long you've had your policy rolling, you could be in the accumulation stage, but it also you could be in the, the withdrawal stage where it's like you get to a point where this money has grown over time and you're like, you know what, I need this money to live now. And now we can start withdrawing again against the value of that cash value policy loan, taking it out. And then the death benefit, right? The other benefit there, there's a death benefit. And by the time, let's say you continually withdraw, as long as you've done the number crunching, right? And this is why you have an advisor like Kyle here to kind of like guide you through that process, you're going to figure out what's the right amount so that you never run out of money. And then the death benefit can cover that loan balance and you get to utilize the money tax-free. That's another benefit of doing this strategy versus every five years putting your money in a different GIC. I love it. And that's a really great point there, John. Something that I think is important for people to recognize. So for this particular individual from my family who were discussing this idea of like this amount of money they wanted to put in GICs, we sort of discussed like, well, what's your plan for this money? And really for them, it's just money we have here and we just want to have a certain amount of it that we know is completely safe and sort of neutral to market volatility. So I'm like, totally makes sense. So let's create a plan for you where this can do what it is that you're looking to do. And then ultimately when it is, when the time comes where you may need it, because it really this couple in my family was saying they don't need the money right now, but they want to make sure that they have that money if and when they need it, right? So when it gets to that point where maybe they need this money, which is often the distance, they want to make sure that it's there and that it hasn't been inflated away, right? It hasn't depreciated in value, meaning inflation's gotten so high where that amount of money can't buy as much as it could buy in today's dollars. So this is an opportunity for them to go, okay, we're going to grow this thing. And then ultimately, when you get to a specific point, one of the beauties is the way that you would design a policy like this would likely get you to what we'll call a break-even point at about year five or into year six. And what I mean by that is if you decided at that point that you were like, I don't want to borrow against it. Like, John, I just can't wrap my head around borrowing against my own money. They just can't figure it out. And I'm like, that's totally fine. Anytime after year five, they're able to cancel the policy and they will get money back as well as any money that they've earned in cash value. The only difference is it now becomes 
taxable again, right? That money that you've earned on the policy, but it's always an option for you. I think that's something that holds a lot of people back. They feel like they're, meanwhile, over here, we have RSPs, which literally is jail for your money, right? Until you retire. It's like jail for your money. Over here, we have a whole life policy where it's like jail for your money if you're unwilling to borrow against it in the first five years. That's as like big of a commitment that you really need to make. And you always have that exit card available to you. If you cancel in year one, yes, you are losing money. It's not a good strategy for you. Do not do that. However, what we try to encourage people to have is even in year one, you can actually borrow against it if you need to or wanted to. Maybe there's an investment there. Maybe there's an emergency that came up. It's still accessible to you. And like I say, at any point, technically you could surrender the policy. And as long as you're beyond your five, year six mark, you're going to be ahead of the game. And I'll be honest though, if you make it to that year five or six, it's like those 3%, then it becomes an average of 4% to between 4 and 5% per year, compounding growth each year. And that's on the early years of the policy as well. So it erases all of the early, what we call negativity that's happening. Some people think it's like, well, no, I'm never going to get that money back in year one. It's like, yes, you will. You're going to get an average compounding rate that's going to be between that four to 5% typically based on all of the projection or all of the past history. And you can always loan against it. And for me, all of my policies, my plan is I get to a point where I'm then at a place where I don't put any more money into the policy. I let it self-fund itself and I slowly borrow against it and use it as additional retirement income. Even though, let's be honest, John, you and I, we're never retiring. There's no such thing. However, we are going to be using those policies to help fund our lifestyle in the future. For sure. For sure. Folks, we hope you've got some takeaways here as we've kind of navigated a few different areas. We wanted to help you learn how to navigate those ups and downs of the GIC and bond in the Canadian market and avoid some of the pitfalls. Think about rates. Think about optimizing for tax efficiency. We hope we did that. We also wanted to uncover Canadian tax efficient investing advice here for you, but also to kind of talk about what to look at for tax sheltering without for investments, but also for without compromising your RSP and tax-free savings account room. We hope we provided some of that value here for you. And if you are considering, if you're thinking of like, you know what, guys, I think the par whole life policy does make a lot of sense, just like we think it makes a lot of sense. You can always reach out to us at CanadianWealthSecrets.com forward slash discovery. That's CanadianWealthSecrets.com forward slash discovery and book a meeting with us and uh, we can walk you through your options and whether that makes the best sense for you. Awesome, my friends. Hey, as always, links and resources are up on that website. Like John just said, CanadianWealthSecrets.com. And hey, don't be a stranger. Reach out to us. Leave us a rating and review and reach out to us on social. And we will see you in our next episode of Canadian Wealth Secrets. All right, folks, this is a reminder. The information you heard here today is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. 
John is a mortgage agent with BRX Mortgage. That's Bricks Mortgage License Number M23006803. And Kyle is a licensed life and accident and sickness insurance agent and financial advisor with the PanCorp team, which includes corporate advisors and Pan Financial. Hey, Canadian Wealth Secret Seekers. I'm happy to tell you that it's working. What you ask? Well, we've been asking you to do us a huge solid and share the podcast in the same way it was shared with you. And it's working. We've been in the top 100 business podcasts on Apple Podcasts for over the past few weeks, and we're sticking. And that is all thanks to you. Thanks again. And if you haven't yet, leave a rating, a review, and keep on sharing.